Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. Today on the show, we are going to talk not so much about the news of the week, but the news of the last couple of months as our lead story anyway. Now, usually we kick off with something like, oh, a gas crisis that's happening right now, or a landmark piece of climate-related legislation that's being pushed through at the moment. But this week, I want to talk about the climate crisis itself, about the coal face of the issue, if you'll excuse the pun. And I'm referring to the European drought, because this has not been a day's story or a week's story. This has been an ongoing almost three-month story now. Now, we have seen unprecedented heat. We have seen unprecedented dryness uh, or drought in Europe. And some of the stats that we're going to delve into are really going to knock the beret off your head. It's it's pretty amazing what's been happening in France and, and other countries. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to have a chat about solar power. And actually, there was an amazing little milestone that we hit in Australia last week, which has gone to an extent unreported. So we're going to report on that. We've also got a special interview with a Queenslander who is absolutely trying to change the face of what, what you'd call the environmental approvals process uh, with a view to climate change. And we're going to be talking about seahorses. We're going to be talking about golf. No, you haven't stumbled into a sporting podcast by mistake. We're going to be talking about golf in a green context. All that and more here on The Canary this week. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ant Sharwood. And for the third week in a row, the third and final week, you might be pleased to hear, I'm not joined by my usual co-host, the delightful, the well-informed Elfie Scott. She's been travelling uh, through that heatwave in Germany and Portugal and elsewhere in Europe. So perhaps when we meet next week, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with a bit of weather banter, which normally would be small talk to start a podcast. But I actually think this weather issue in Europe is absolutely fascinating. And I'd be interested to see what exactly the weather was like where she was. So then let's kick on with the pod and let's start with that weather in Europe or that climate as as it appears to be. Um, look, you know it's bad. You know it's been extreme. You knew it was extreme when you saw that England had 41 degrees. Now, England had never had more than a 38.9 degree day before in its history. That all went totally out the window in uh, July when there was a 41 degree day that was 40 and a bit in parts of London. Can you imagine walking out at Heathrow, Heathrow Airport into what would feel like a, an Australian day in the absolute peak of summer. It would have been absolutely incredible. But look, there's a, there's a heat map and a rainfall de deficiency map that I'm going to put in the newsletter this week. And it shows that it wasn't just the UK, it wasn't just France and Germany and Spain and areas that have been quite well reported. It went halfway up Scandinavia. It continues up halfway uh, halfway up Scandinavia, it being the the heat and the ongoing rainfall deficiencies. There has not uh, been a summer in this uh, a summer, sorry, like this. Scientists are telling us in Europe for five hundred years. In fact, there probably hasn't been one ever like this in in recorded or experienced human history. Um, let's whip around some of the countries. I mean, France. It had its it's had its driest July on record. Talk about dry July. France uh, averaged something like eight millimetres across the country in the month, which is barely a sprinkle. Um, it was the driest month in any 
calendar month, actually, in 61 years. So it was just a shocking time of year for that to happen in the heat of summer. Um, the wine industry uh, <laughs> is experiencing problems. The cheese industry, some varieties are not going to be produced this year. Um, it might seem trivial. It might be seem, seem trivial to sort of say, oh, look, wine and cheese, you know, it's it's... But in a sense... We're trying to be relatable here. I mean, they say that all good journalism is lifestyle journalism, which which is to say that it reaches you at a, at a point you can relate to. So I think most of us can relate to wine and cheese when it comes to France. And, you know, if that doesn't work for you, let's go to Italy. Uh, let's talk about Arborio rice, which, of course, is that fantastic rice that you use for your risotto. Um, well, the Po River in Italy is running at 10% of its usual flow. Um, that is it's just absolutely shocking, and they cannot get enough water to irrigate the arborio rice. In fact, the, the tomato crops in a lot of trouble in a lot of places in Italy, and they're talking about trouble with passata. You know that that red stuff that you make um, that you use for pasta sauce. Um, the people who make passata are having supply chain issues with tomatoes because they're not growing because of the drought. Um, you thought the supply chain issues were all done with COVID. Well, well, they're climate related as well. Even even some some trees or some crops that you think might be impervious to drought, like the good old olive. You know, it has grown in hot places since biblical times. Olives are in trouble. They are not producing fruit in Spain, in parts of Spain, in parts of southern Italy, along the Mediterranean, here and there. There is going to be an olive oil shortage, we're now being told. So it's an absolutely um, very, very serious uh, issue, this, this drought. And of course, we've seen wildfires in Europe that don't normally, in places that don't normally have them. We're seeing also transport issues. We're seeing shipping being absolutely decimated on the great European rivers where the barges can't run to, to carry loads of freight. Uh, I read a great phrase this week. It, it described the Rhine River in Germany as one of the great freight arteries of Europe. I love that. And, of course, when an artery is blocked in the human body, uh, if you're lucky enough, you'll get a bypass. Well, they're trying to bypass the Rhine now and chuck all that freight on uh, uh, trains and trucks if they can. But it's a logistical nightmare. And, you know, the great rivers of Europe are drying up. You can walk across the Loire in places, uh, in, which is, of course, is France's longest river. Um, but Europe, as we know it, does not look like Europe as we know it as well. And th there are so many aspects to it. Glaciers melted earlier than uh, ever before. Oh, sorry, the the rate of glaciers and the European snowpack is what melted earlier than ever before. And you know, the more snow you have on a glacier, the more reflective is the glacier, so the less the glacier melts. As soon as the snowpack melts, that sits on top of the ice, all those brown little stones sort of come through and the glacier melts quicker as well. So Europe is changing. We are seeing something unbelievable happening in Europe. What's it all about? Of course you know what it's all about. In two words, it's about climate change. Now, I just want to run a phrase by you. Here it is. That phrase is extreme weather is the face of climate change. Now, the reason I run that phrase by you, it's by the American um, climate scientist, Michael E. Mann of Penn State University. And Michael E. Mann is, of course, the person who 
first drew up the hockey stick graph, that famous graph that changed our perceptions back in the 1990s, and went, hey, look, um, is the acceleration uh, of climate change caused by human hands since the Industrial Revolution. So Michael Mann wrote the phrase, extreme weather is the face of climate change. I think of that phrase anytime I see a drought, a black summer, Lismore go underwater, any extreme weather anywhere. Extreme weather is the face of climate change. Of course, we've always had extreme weather, but the more we have, the more frequent and the more severe, that is when it becomes the face of climate change. When you have a 500 year, or sorry, a one in 500 year, or a not seen really ever in Europe type drought, or for at least 500 years, that extreme weather is the face of climate change. And the reason I toss that uh, phrase up now is Michael Mann actually coined that phrase in an article he wrote in 2018. That's important because 2018 was the last severe European drought. And he was saying it then, and we've just gone and had a drought. We're still having it in Europe. That is way worse than the 2018 one. So of course, I'm thinking of that phrase again, extreme weather is the face of climate change that was used to describe that drought four years ago. So how do we uh, turn all this around? Well, you know the answer to that. Uh, we have to change the way we live on Earth. One of the ways we do that is, of course, by accelerating the transition to clean green energy. And speaking of clean green energy, let us transition to our second story for the week. And as mentioned in the intro, that story is about solar power. Now, as I said, there's a little milestone that happened this week. It went more or less unnoticed, but here's what happened. For about half an hour on Friday, solar energy eclipsed coal as the lead source of power in the East Coast energy market. So, look, that had actually happened before, but it had happened when big coal plants were out of commission for whatever reason. And we know that that some of them are sort of more or less down all the time now, having, having various operational issues. But there was no major blip that made things worse than they normally are. What happened was we had a sunny Friday and there is sufficient now solar in the system that for half an hour on a sunny Friday, last Friday, solar was the biggest contributor to the energy market in the East Coast, which which is amazing. And look, a lot of that solar was um, from rooftop panels, um, not just solar farms. Um, we know that Australia leads the world in rooftop solar. We know that around 30% of homes do have fo- photovoltaic panels, which is amazing. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit more about solar because Mike Cannon-Brooks said something interesting about solar last week. Now, we love Mike Cannon-Brooks, uh, Cannon-Brooks sorry, here on the Green Canary. Um, we've talked a lot about his disruption of AGL earlier this year, um, you know, trying to stop them and their... their dirty gas plans, which he did. Um, Mike Cannon-Brooks was talking at a thing called the EV Summit in Canberra. Yes, there was an electric vehicles summit in Canberra. And actually, I'll get to Mike Cannon-Brooks in a sec. I just want to uh, mention what Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen said at the EV Summit in Canberra. He said that Australia could do a Sweden. Yes, he did. Now, he didn't mean, I I don't think, that we could have... uh, you know, IKEA's on every corner, although we've got enough anyway, or, or bands like ABBA, although I think Australia is actually the biggest ABBA uh, fans in the world. But anyway, Chris Bowen said, we could do a Sweden. What did he mean? 
He was talking about the fact that Sweden increased its proportion of EV sales from 18% of the overall car market to 62%. And it did that in just two years. So go Sweden. How did Sweden do it? Well, uh, look, Chris Bowen wasn't, wasn't long on the specifics, but he did say that with the right policy settings, Australia could do it. So let's do it, Chris Bowen. Fire your bow and arrow, as I always like to say. And Elfie usually slaps me across the face when I say that, but she's not here, so I can get away with it. Now, that was the EV summit in Canberra. I was just mentioning something that Chris Bowen said there because I thought it was newsworthy. But the reason I was mentioning the EV summit was uh, in the context of this discussion we're having about solar. Mike Cannonbrooks was there. He was speaking about how rooftop solar was a key part of the electric vehicle equation. Um, he was talking about powering your car from the sunlight trapped on your roof, which is inspiring stuff. And he gave a great quote. He said, suddenly you realize that, wait, I can make my own petrol and it's very cheap to get it off my roof and stick it straight into my car. Now, I love that phrase, make my own petrol. That is such a good phrase. Somebody should get out there, whether it's a solar industry body or a government or somebody, but somebody should use make your own petrol as a slogan for solar and for, you know, specifically using your own solar panels in tandem with your own electric vehicle. Make your own petrol. Absolutely love that. It's just a really, really good thought. Last thought, one more thought about solar. Um, I think we're going to do a pod on how to do, how to install solar panels on your house. I've been thinking about this for so long. Um, I'd love one of you, if you've done it, or if you're going through it, just to reach out to us. Uh, just email hello at thegreencanary.co or find us on social media or wherever. Um, because it'd be great to hear from one of you. It'd be great to hear from someone anyway that has gone through the journey, picked up the phone, made the first call, the second call, however many calls you need to, to make, but the whole A to Z of how do I put solar panels on my roof? Um, what are the financial arrangements? Can I get assistance? What? How do the rebates work? Everything. Um, how long did it take? You know, love to do a thing all about that. So we'd love to hear from you. Hope to, but let's move on. Okay, so change of pace again. Now, as I mentioned, Elfie is away, but before she went, she recorded a terrific interview. Haven't had a chance to run it yet, but I'm going to throw it in this week. Now, the interview is with Christine Carlisle. She is the president of the Environment Council of Queensland. And Christine Carlisle just gave 3,000 documents, thank you very much, to the Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek. Why did she give 3,000 documents? Well, firstly, I hope they were electronic <laughs> because, you know, that would be a lot of paper. But... Look, as I mentioned in the intro to the pod, this is all about factoring the impacts of climate change into environment development proposals. So it's it's really important stuff. It's a whole new area that we're all going to have to think about. I won't say any more. Let's listen to the interview. It's terrific stuff. I learned an absolute stack as I listened to it. So let's hear from Christine Carlisle of the Environment Council of Queensland and the Green Canary's own Elfie Scott. So Christine Carlisle, you are the president of the Environmental Council of Central Queensland and you are the organisation that has recently lodged all of those papers uh, with Tanya Plibersek. Uh, welcome to the show and thank you so much for having a chat with me today. Thank you very much. And may I say, uh, 
we lodged them with the support and assistance of the Environmental Justice Australia team. Uh, yeah. They're our lawyers representing us. Fantastic. Okay. Can I ask you about the uh, reconsideration that you have lodged with uh, Tanya Plibersek and how mm. that actually came about? First up, I would like to ask you, why now? Why have you decided to hand over these 3,000 documents to the Environment Minister mm. now? Now is just because that's when we had them ready, um, is really the short answer to that. So this is not a knee-jerk reaction to a change of government. We've been working on this for months and months and months. I can't say how many months, but a long, long time. And it takes time to prepare all of these documents. So there's... <clears throat> 19 coal and gas proposals that we've we've chosen on various criteria and you know some of the criteria was just being able to access um, enough information in the public domain to prepare a very good case so each of the proposals is um, unique uh, each coal proposal is unique but there, there is a common theme, I suppose, is their contribution to climate change. And that's what we're asking the minister to consider. So when the minister has a proposal come across her desk uh, to be assessed, she really must ask herself, she's tasked the legal requirement in, under the legislation that the minister asks herself which of these matters could be harmed by this proposal. And the matters are called matters of national environmental significance. But to you and to me and to your listeners, these are our threatened and endangered species. It could be koalas. How did they become endangered? Uh, our, uh, <laughs> this, our little iconic animal. Um, and turtles and dugongs and platypus in various areas all the things that I they identify us as Australians um, but other things too that like our wetlands our migratory um, species our national treasures like Kakadu and the Tarkine and the Great Barrier Reef one that's particularly close to my heart it uh, makes me feel very emotional about it that we could um, let these slip away and mm. The, the minister, as I said, is required to consider the harms, but to date they've not included climate impacts in these harms. It, it was more they would consider the harms but only in the geographical location of these proposals. So what we're asking is a, a broader description of what the harms, what harms, are being done. Yeah, sure. And I, I know that you're working with Environmental Justice Australia uh, mm. to bring this to the minister, but I, I suppose I was wondering where the idea originally came from, because I know that this is a sort of very little used, um, little understood part of the legislation. Um, so I, yeah, I guess I was wondering who came up with the idea originally. Well, who knows where an idea actually, generally <laughs> ideas evolve, don't they? They're a, they're a combination of a whole lot of things. 
But our group, as well as all of the environment groups, I mean, we're part of a wider ecosex, part of a wider environmental movement. And we've been talking and rallying uh, about climate change impacts for, for decades. Uh, in the, I don't know how many submissions ECOSEC has put in, in the last, since our inception. But, you know, be more, hundreds, be hundreds of submissions. Um, and they all just talk about climate change. Climate change has been perceived as, you know, arguably, but the, the, the really, across the board, biggest threat, not only to the existence of all of these matters of national environmental significance, but to ourselves. It's, uh, we, we live in an interdependent world and, you know, we're, we've been talking about it for a long time. But the argument um, for the minister is a legal argument. Mm. So that, that's where we engaged Environmental Justice Australia to consider those legal arguments. And together through all these many, many months of talking about, you know, where can we go? What can we do? Let's collect some information. Um, so that's how all of this has come about. On yeah. the back of years and years and years of, of work and advocacy and lobbying. Yeah, amazing. And I know that there are a couple of different outcomes um, from lodging these papers with Tanya Plibersek. So on the one hand, she could readily accept that this is legitimate grounds uh, for consideration with these kind of projects. But then on the other hand, she could also completely reject this idea. And I have read that it could end up in federal court in that instance. Uh, could you explain the details of that outcome a little bit more, Tammy? Um, we're not looking forward to federal court. We think we're going for option A that you've just proposed, Elfie, <laughs> is that the minister looks at this overwhelming um, dossier of scientific information and, uh, you know, agrees to say, look, I think you, it, it is incumbent on me to reconsider, um, you know, this first stage of the approval that the projects have, uh, have been through. So in that, when I say that first stage, that's uh, the gatekeeper. I mentioned that the minister is legally obliged to consider those matters and that's what we're asking her to reconsider is that when they were originally passed through that first gate climate change impacts were not part of the consideration mm. and not only part of the consideration for those special places and plants and animals in that geographic area, but the climate change impact of that proposal on all the matters that the minister is, you know, um, tasked to assess. So a global um, sort of impact. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, ultimately, in terms of the uh, EPBC Act, yes. uh, would you like to see that terminology altered so that it does include climate change in the future? Because it does seem rather strange at this point uh, to consider that everything we do in terms of environmental legislation around assessing uh, fossil fuel projects doesn't actually include 
the one big thing that we need to talk about, I suppose. The elephant in the room. You're quite right in that, Elfie, in that uh, it, it hasn't been, um, uh, it, it, the EPBC Act is an, is an old act now. It was um, from 1999. Uh, so it does, it is under review. And back when it, it, it climate change was not mentioned in the act, but as you've noted, it's it's um, a rarely used reconsideration, and because it's not mentioned in those words, doesn't mean that climate change shouldn't be considered, because it does have an impact, a well documented impact, and that's in the in the um, dossier that we've handed over to the minister. So it. it ought to be considered, yes. And, and, and I would look forward to a proper review of the PBC Act to uh, include uh, all of these, all of these uh, things. Yeah, sure. Have you heard back from Tanya Plibersek's office yet? No, and, but neither would we expect to. Uh, it's a huge volume of work. Um, each of those proposals, the 19 that we've talked about, um, has its its own within the within the greater uh, vault. Uh, each of those has its own considerations, all you know, identified, and uh, it, it's a lot of work to get through. Mm. And and the minister's not on a timeline for this. The in the legislation, it doesn't say you must make a decision within this many days. It, it just gives, again, broad terms to say um, as soon as practicable. Right. Okay, sure. And so, then, so I suppose I should ask, uh, what do you predict from here? How are you feeling about the entire thing? I think it's a very strong case. You know, I think it's a very good way to, to include, include these considerations of climate change. Uh, what do I predict? Um, I have more hope than prediction. I, I'm not really sure um, which way uh, it will go. We're very excited uh, that Tanya Plibersek uh, is the Environment Minister. Um, she's um, proved herself, I guess, as a woman of intelligence and integrity and we realize that she probably will consider this uh, reconsideration request very very seriously mm. I don't expect that she'll take an offhand approach to it yeah so yeah. yes it's a wait and see Sure. Okay. I mean, I suppose that's all you can really ask for at this point. But um, yeah, I mean, good luck and fingers <laughs> crossed for the future of this, because I think it's such a fascinating uh, project and we're going to keep an eye on it at the Green Canary. Thanks, Elfie. So well done, Elfie. Great interview. And well done, of course, to Christine Carlisle. That is some great work that they are doing there at the Environment Council of Queensland. And let's move on to mulch. Let's just go through a couple of the little clippings that came across my desk this week. Now, there's some good news. I saw that the New South Wales government has unveiled a new program called Seabirds to Seascapes. It's a $9 million program, thank you very much, or thereabouts. This is a, project, a program sorry, that is designed to protect 
even enhance coastal biodiversity. Uh, it's a partnership between the New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment and a bunch of experts from the Sydney Institute of Marine Science, the Taronga Conservation Society Australia, the NSW National Parks and Wildlife Service. So there's a whole bunch of bodies that are working in tune with the government here. What's it all about? What are they doing? Okay, there are three main things. They're going to be surveying penguins. They're going to be surveying seals. This is along the New South Wales coastline. So penguins and seals, that's one and two, which is great because they haven't been surveyed properly for a long time. But the third one I really love, they are going to restore key marine habitat in Sydney Harbour. They're going to replace seagrasses and kelp, which is amazing. But the really cool thing they're doing is they're going to install a bunch of living seawalls, as they're called, across the harbour. Now, these living seawalls, there's already some of them in there, by the way, and they're going to attract all sorts of marine life. They know they're going to do that because the ones they've put there already do that. One of the things they want to attract more, attract more of are these gorgeous little seahorses that live on the seawall under the Sydney Opera House. And I just love that. First of all, I absolutely love seahorses, but I love the fact that under the Sydney Opera House, well, is a house for seahorses. I just think that's absolutely wonderful that they're doing that, building these seawalls, that they're also doing the surveys of the seals, and of course, those great little marine birds, the penguins. And speaking of uh, birdies, you might say, yes, that is this week's terrible segue. And I mentioned at the top that we wanted to speak about golf. Let's speak about golf. This is actually a story uh, I read this week about the uh, Northcote Golf Course in, in Melbourne. Uh, it's probably, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight kilometres north, northeast of the city, something like that. Um, but Northcote Golf Course first came to everybody's attention during the Victorian lockdowns in the pandemic because people weren't allowed to go more than 5Ks from their home and the only space that the people in the vicinity could use was the golf course. So, and golf wasn't, wasn't allowed to be played at the time. You might remember... That delightful celebrity Sam Newman blew up about that, but um, and everyone got him back, which was pretty funny. But, um, you know, people flocked to the local golf course. It was their only green space. And after the lockdown was over, people kind of went, hmm, we really like this uh, North Coast, Northcote Public Golf Club and all the amazing sort of native birds and stuff that are there. We want to keep coming here. So they formed a group, one thing and another, after two years of debate, um, the local council, Darabin City Council, has rejected. This is not good news. They have rejected a move to open the course to the public. Now they didn't want the public didn't want the course open all the time. I think the proposal was something like after three p.m. some days, or you know, to have a non-designated golf day once a week or once a month. All thrown out. All gone up. Uh, so the golf course is still a golf course. It looks a public golf course, so you can pay to play. It's not like it's the most elite space in Melbourne, like Royal Melbourne or something. But still, it is green space that is not available to the community. I reckon this debate's going to flare up a lot over the years. I, I reckon as golf declines in popularity, which it is, uh, mainly it's a time issue. People just don't have hours and hours and hours to go around hitting golf balls. Um, but as... as uh, you know, golf does decline. I think this is going to be an issue that rears its head elsewhere. I just want to sort of end by saying that uh, the Golf Australia boss, James Sutherland, did weigh in. Now, you might remember the name James Sutherland. He was the long-serving Cricket Australia chief uh, who presided over the era of the ball tampering scandal. So uh, I'm not necessarily sure that James Sutherland is the first guy you want to listen to on anything. 
uh, especially when it comes to culture. But he had uh, what I sort of came across to me anyway as, as a, a sort of gloaty sort of comment afterwards. He said, golf needs to stand its ground. And he went on to say, even if you have never played at Northcote or ever seen the course, uh, that doesn't matter because public golf is the estuary of our game, the estuary of our game. It is where most people start. Take it away and we don't have a game. So he had no sympathy for the uh, users of, of open space or those who, who would want to use a golf course as that. But I just want to pull you up on something there, James Sutherland, because you said public golf is the estuary of our game. It's where most people start. Now, hang on a minute. Estuaries, I mean, this is a river analogy, and estuaries are not where rivers start. Estuaries is where they end. You said public golf is the estuary of our game. It's where most people start. That is gobbledygook. You are getting your rivers backwards. Your analogy is junk. I think your argument is junk. I think golf courses should be turned over to the public at certain times. Did you know that St Andrews, the home of golf, quote unquote, the home of golf, where they recently played the 150th British Open, won by the Australian Cameron Smith, who shot 30 in the last round. So there you go. I know my sport. I love my golf. But St Andrews is public land. After that tournament, the public walked the course on Sunday afternoon, as they have been allowed to do forever, and the public should absolutely be able to walk um, Northcote Golf Course in Melbourne. And James Sutherland doesn't know what he's talking about. And let's end the podcast there before I defame the bloke. But golf is the estuary of our game. It's where people start. Nothing starts in an estuary. I'll say it again. That's where rivers end. Okay. All right. And this is where the podcast's going to end. So we'll wrap it up, as we always do, by paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. They are the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. And we acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded. Um, before we go this week, just want to remind you, hello at thegreencanary.co is our email if you want to talk about solar panels, as discussed earlier. Or if you want to subscribe to our newsletter, you're not a green canaria, I'm afraid, unless you're newslettering and podding with us. So please double up. Um, I keep promising you the landing page is imminent. I've been speaking to our designer this week. It is imminently imminent, where you can just land somewhere and go click and subscribe that way. But for now, send us that email. Don't forget to chat to us on Twitter, at Green Canary Pod or at Green Canary Media on Insta. And we'll see you in the newsletter on Wednesday. And that's about it for this week. See you with Elfie next week. Bet you're glad about that. I know I am. Thanks for listening. See you then. Bye.